Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, everybody, and you're very welcome to our Signpost series webinar this morning. My name is Andy Boland, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so as we talk through another issue of farming and the environment. This morning, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Edward Straw, and Edward is going to be talking to us about the impacts of pesticides on the environment. Edward, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And I'm also joined by Michael Hennessy. Michael is our Head of Crops and Knowledge Transfer Department in Chagas, and Michael is going to keep an eye on the questions and hopefully lead the, the debate uh, and uh, facilitate the debate that we, we will have after Edward's uh, presentation. So, Michael, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Andy. Looking forward to it. Edward, you might uh, begin by just maybe telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you have done uh, to date in, in this area. Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Trinity College, um, which means I'm just one of the scientists um, there. Uh, I mostly work on the impacts of pesticides uh, on bumblebee health. Um, so I, I look at how herbicides and fungicides impact uh, the buff-tailed bumblebee um, and, and what routes of exposure um, and what ways in which the pesticides can potentially hurt the bees. Um, I mostly look at the minor ingredients in pesticides, so things like adjuvants and carriers rather than the active ingredients. Um, and over the last year or so, I've also been working on the Protects project um, and that's the research I'm going to be talking to you um, about today. So I'm going to be talking to you today about the impacts of pesticides on the environment. Um, we're going to be talking about what the science says on this topic, coming from the perspective of sort of academic university scientists here. Um, I'm also going to be talking about the Protex project, which is uh, um, where, where we got the funding to do this research for. Um, so starting off with the Protex project itself, um, it is a four-year study that has been run uh, as a collaboration between four separate universities, DCU, Maynooth, Trinity, and UCD, alongside Chagas and Daffam. And initially, we wanted to look at how we could reduce the impacts of pesticides um, on you know, bees and soils. Um, but actually, when we started to, to think about that, we said, hang on a second, we don't really know enough about the impacts of, of pesticides on bees and soils. So um, let's actually do some of that like baseline research. Let's actually look at um, the, the very the base level um, and say, can we develop more scientific knowledge on this topic before we go ahead and start making recommendations? So that would allow us to make more informed um, and deliberate recommendations based on actual real scientific evidence rather than just common sense or, or, or assumptions. So today we're gonna to be talking about um, a series of topics. Um, first of all, we'll just cover why bees and soils are important and what value they have to us, um, both in farming and the wider ecosystem. Then we'll talk about what threats are facing bees. Um, that's a lot of discussion in the, in the press. Um, so we'll cover the actual like science behind that. Then we'll move on to talking about um, how much we know about herbicides and fungicides and how they impact bees. Then we'll talk about some of the research that we've done on the Protex project about contamination of flowers with glyphosate um, and what glyphosate is. Then we'll close off by talking about the diversity of pesticide products that are on sale, both to farmers and to um, you know, amateur users, households and the like. So beginning with bees and soils, um, bees, you know, there's the general assumption that they're very important and that assumption is, is true. Um, within Ireland, there's about 100 species of bee. 
one species of honeybee, something like 20 species of bumblebee, and then the rest of the species are solitary bees. Across the globe, 75% um, of all different types of crop are pollinated by bees, which means they're incredibly important in agricultural ecosystems. And then something like 90% of all wild plants are pollinated by bees. Now it's not to say that particularly within Ireland, all agriculture is reliant on bees, you know, grass, um, wheat, barley, they're not um, pollinated by bees, they're pollinated by the wind. But bees, even within Ireland, are incredibly important in protecting our ecosystem more broadly um, and keeping sort of the, the broader ecosystem, so, so the wildflowers and trees and stuff like that, healthy and functioning. Um, and it's not necessarily just the amount of food that, that, that bees contribute to producing, it's also the, the quality of the food. Um, so if you look at some like vitamins, like vitamin C, around 90% of the vitamin C that we as the human race consume comes from crops that have to be bee pollinated. So actually without bees, we would be very, very deficient in certain nutrients. Moving on to soils then. Um, soils, you know, they're the absolute foundation of, of agriculture. Um, without hot, healthy quality soils, you know, you really can't just produce the volume of food that we need to, to sustain 8 billion people. Soils are also really important in the recycling of nutrients um, and regulation of the climate. You know, they lock up a lot of carbon um, and help us achieve sort of the carbon uh, climate goals that we are aiming for there. I'm mostly going to be talking about bees simply because that's where my area of expertise is, but we will touch on soils a little bit. So when we talk about bees, you know, the narrative is that all the bees are dying and that's terrible and that pesticides are the cause behind all of that. Um, and, you know, it is true that bees are suffering population declines right across, across the globe. It's less severe than some of the, the, the rhetoric would lead you to believe, but there is still good evidence that we are having bee declines within Europe in particular. But the, the real science says that the, the, the main reason that we've seen these historical levels of declines is actually just because of changes in how we use land. It's not necessarily pesticides that are the main cause driving this. It's the fact that, say, within Europe, we've lost something like 95% of the wildflower meadows. Um, so that's like prime habitat for bees that we've just simply um, kind of removed. So historically, it's mostly land use changes that are driving the declines in bee populations. Um, and then following on from that, you know, another stressor that bees are facing is pesticides. We do know that some pesticides have, you know, real impacts on bees' health. And we do know from good studies, um, good field studies, big, well-replicated stuff, that some pesticides are driving sort of damage to bee populations at a landscape level. Finally, um, of the human-led stressors that the bees have, the things that are stressing bees out, climate change is, is another one that, that's coming up. Um, as we see increasing weather patterns that are, are confusing for bees, that, that mess with their hibernation cycles and their foraging cycles. And additionally, we see um, increasing amounts of invasive species, invasive parasites um, and invasive predators coming in and, and sort of messing with the, the bees' general ecosystem and how they function. So of those three threats there, you know, we're trying to do what we can on climate change. Um, we can't really do that much about how we use land just because there's too many people knocking about Pesticides is something that we can tangibly do, but again, pesticides are very important for, for modern agriculture. So like we need to look at how we um, address pesticide use to make it better for bees while still protecting pesticides um, and preventing you know, us leading to mass starvation. So when we were thinking about protecting bees from pesticides, you know, we initially thought about insecticides. You know, um, we know that some insecticides can harm bees. 
But we wanted to look at where there wasn't um, good evidence already. Um, and we were thinking about it and we were thinking, there's actually quite a lot of research on the impacts of insecticides on bees. What about the other types of pesticides? What about herbicides, so weed killers or fungicides? How do they impact bees? And really when we were looking out there at the literature, we realized that there was very little going on there. There was very little that we had knowledge of there. So we wanted to quantify that like scientifically. Um, so we conducted a systematic review, which means that we scanned all of the scientific literature with a very rigorous methodology. And we, we counted every single paper that tested the impacts of a herbicide or a fungicide on bees specifically. What we found was that um, for herbicides, there was really very little research whatsoever. So glyphosate, the most widely used pesticide um, in sort of like ever, there was only 15 studies done on the impacts of glyphosate on bees. And then for the next top five, um, we're talking single digit numbers of studies. So there's a really low level of research going on there for herbicides, given herbicides are so very widely used. The story for fungicides is a little bit better. Um, you know, at least the top five are all double digit numbers of studies um, going on here. Um, so propiconazole, the, one of the most widely used pesticides in Ireland, that at least had 15 studies um, done on it. Unfortunately, though, a lot of these studies are done in terms of how the fungicide interacts with insecticides to harm bees, whereas they're not specifically having fungicides as the main um, the main topic there. Um, so actually, the, the level of research that we have for fungicides isn't as great as the, these numbers would lead you to believe. You know, when we compare this through to, say, insecticides, if you sum up every single piece of research that's been done on herbicides and fungicides combined, it's probably less research that's been done on one single neonicotinoid. So really, in comparison to the insecticide literature, we know almost nothing about this. So for the majority of the talk today, we're going to be talking about glyphosate. It's one of the main substances that we worked on within the Protects project. Um, it was a really good one for us to study um, uh, and to choose to study simply because it's very widely used within Ireland and it's very widely used in modern agriculture. Glyphosate is an important substance in modern agriculture because it allows sort of low-till or no-till um, farming. Um, and that's very important in terms of regulating the climate and preventing massive amounts of soil erosion. Glyphosate is a weed killer, so it's a herbicide. It's designed to, to, to target um, sort of weed species within a crop, um, and it's very, very important in that. It can be bought by both farmers in formulations like, say, Roundup um, Pro Bio or, or Gallup formulations and, and the like there, but it can also be bought by consumers in Duns or Tesco in formulations like Roundup Ready to Use. So we looked at how much glyphosate was used within Irish ecosystems, and we said, what are the impacts of this on bees? Could bees be exposed to this um, herbicide? And one of the things that we found was that residues of glyphosate can actually spread further than we would expect them to within, um, uh, within a field. So we found that um, when glyphosate was used as a desiccant in oilseed rape crops, um, and when we say a desiccant in oilseed rape crops, what we mean there is that, that when an oilseed rape crop um, has the seed pods um, and it's nearing ready to be harvested, uh, farmers can spray the field with uh, glyphosate to kill off the crop um, and to make it more uniform so that you get a better harvest and it's easier to harvest um, and that massively increases yield. And we found that um, when that crop was sprayed as a desiccant um, with glyphosate, following you know, correct uh, 
pesticide application guidelines, bramble flowers in the field margin two weeks later, so the, the margin around the field that weren't sprayed, um, we found that they actually ended up being contaminated with uh, the pesticide, with glyphosate. So we were seeing that the residues of the um, pesticide product that weren't supposed to be making their way outside of the field were actually leading to contamination of the flowers that bees will be foraging on in the surrounding environment. There's a few different ways in which the pesticide could have made its way across um, into the bramble flowers. You know, spray drift is one option there. Spray drift isn't the most likely option just because farmers are pretty good at controlling spray drift. There's a lot of different things available to them to do that. Uh, runoff is another option that could have happened whereby the pesticide product could have pooled on the ground and then you know, trickled out into the field margin. That's also not particularly likely because again, farmers are pretty good at controlling runoff. The other option is root uptake. So glyphosate as a sort of water soluble um, substance, a substance that can move around in soils. If there was rain and then the, the sort of the glyphosate leached out into the surrounding area, it could then be taken up by the bramble flower and make its way into the, the flowers through that. So what we were finding was that glyphosate can actually make its way into wildflowers, even though it's not sprayed on them deliberately. However, the, you know, the, the picture isn't the same um, for every single type of application of, of glyphosate. You know, when glyphosate was sprayed before sowing of the oilseed rape, it wasn't detected in the crop and it wasn't detected in the bramble flowers. When it was sprayed after sowing, it wasn't detected in the crop or the bramble flowers. And actually when it was sprayed as a desiccant, it was only detected in the bramble flowers. So this isn't to say that all sprays of glyphosate leads to, to, to contamination everywhere. It's just saying that sometimes when pesticides are sprayed, you do end up with contamination of resources um, that the bees will be foraging on later down the line. Um, and actually that there are unintended consequences to spraying pesticides sometimes that leads to contamination of, of things that bees are gonna be eating. Some further research that we've done on soils that's not yet published, so I won't talk about in much detail, um, but we have found that actually uh, in soil samplings that we've done, we've seen longer persistencies of pesticides in soils than we had anticipated. So we're actually seeing that the pesticides would stick about in the soils uh, for much longer than we were hoping for. Um, and some substances of note that, that were sticking around for longer were boscolid, proteoconazole, and glyphosate. And this just attests to the fact that, that one of the messages that we're saying here is, um, you know, when you spray pesticides, we do have to acknowledge that, that spraying pesticide leads to contamination within the wider ecosystem. You know, that doesn't mean don't spray the pesticide. It just means let's consider for a second, um, is there an alternative to spraying the pesticide? Or then acknowledge that if we are going to be spraying that pesticide, what are the, the consequences of that? How is that going to spread out in the environment? And is the cost of spraying the pesticide worth uh, cost of the pesticide worth the benefit that we derive from it? Now, one of the things that we we heard from people when we're talking about glyphosate and bees is actually it's not particularly important. You don't need to worry about it um, simply because glyphosate kills plants, right? Um, so if you spray a plant like a weed um, and and the plant that dies. The, the, the bees aren't gonna be able to forage on it, so they're not gonna be exposed to it. Um, we kind of 
intuitively knew that this wasn't strictly right, simply because, um, you know, we'd seen residues of glyphosate in honey, we'd seen residues of glyphosate in bee-collected pollen. So we knew that bees were foraging on these plants, but we wanted to demonstrate that scientifically and with some good evidence. So the first thing we did is we, we looked at what happens when you spray a plant with glyphosate. Um, so this is purple tansy. Uh, it's a wildflower that um, we sprayed with glyphosate uh, and we essentially just monitored the, the health of the plant for the next you know, four or five days. And we found that you know, up to 70 hours later, the latest time point that we sampled, we were still seeing contamination of the flowers that were still active um, and sort of like functional flowers there, um, they still had nectar in them and they would still be attractive. Um, so they were still likely to be drawing bees in. So 70 hours later, three days after spraying, you know, the flowers on this plant that has been sprayed and is in the process of dying still had glyphosate in them. We then followed this up by looking at the foraging of the bees on the plants. So on this uh, graph here, you've got two different treatments, uh, uh, unsprayed treatment, so that was just sprayed with water, and then a glyphosate treatment, which was sprayed with glyphosate and eventually died after about five days. And then on the vertical axis, that's just how much time the bees spend on each plant. And what we actually found was that, you know, regardless of whether or not a plant was sprayed with glyphosate or not, within the next, you know, 70 odd hours, bees would forage on it absolutely, you know, without regard whatsoever. They would be perfectly happy foraging on that crop. So really what this leads us to say is that, um, you know, if you spray flowering weeds with pesticides that are bee attractive, that is going to lead to bees being exposed to the pesticides. Um, you know, even though the, the plant will die eventually in the, you know, three, four days after spraying, you are gonna see bee exposure to that pesticide. Again, this isn't to say don't spray pesticides um, because they're so important um, and herbicides are so important in controlling weeds. It's just saying, you know, if we are gonna be spraying these substances, we have to acknowledge that they do have knock-on consequences and do lead to bees being exposed to them. So is there alternatives to a spray? You know, could mechanical action, uh, could mechanical control be done? Could you spray earlier in the season or later in the season when they're not flowering? You know, it's thinking about the alternatives before jumping right into using the spray bottle. Um, zooming out a little bit um, from talking specifically about what we did uh, on the Protect project, uh, I think it's important to talk about the, the wider scientific evidence for the impacts of glyphosate on bees. It's a, it's a topic that's increasingly coming under discussion, particularly with glyphosate um, being up for renewal and there being a whole host of different ways in which people are worried about glyphosate impacting human health or bee health or the wider environment. And, and glyphosate in bees is increasingly becoming a topic of concern. So my personal opinion on, on this, and, and I'm just presenting what I think and my synthesis of the evidence here is that I think there is a limited amount of evidence that glyphosate can be harmful to bees. You know, there's some very high quality studies that show that there are impacts of glyphosate on bees' health. There are also some very high quality studies that show there are, are, that there are not um, impacts of glyphosate on bee health. Um, and that tells us that if it does have impacts, you know, they're not universal. They are maybe context specific, they may be species specific. On top of that, there is also a lot of research that I would characterize as of lower quality scientific research that does find more large scale impacts of glyphosate on bee health. 
So really when we pull that together, we can say that, that there is some evidence that glyphosate can be harmful to bees, but the evidence there is, is, is conflicting at times um, and not massive in scale. Some of the good high quality studies that we've seen impacts of glyphosate on bees, um, we do know that the glyphosate can impact bees' ability to stay warm. Um, bees, they need to stay warm, you know, they're, they're, they're insects. So it can change how they regulate their body temperature um, and regulate the body temperature of their nests. And we also have seen that glyphosate can change the gut microbiome of honeybees. So like it changes how they process food um, and that can actually have knock on consequences for parasite prevalence and parasite um, defense. And actually the glyphosate can make the bees more susceptible to parasites um, because it's changed their gut microbiome. However, you know, we can say that these scale of effects that we've seen, that we have evidence for, um, it's not on the same level as the neonicotinoids, right? Glyphosate's been used since 1974. If it was causing as much damage to, to, to bee populations as the neonicotinoids were, you know, we wouldn't have bees left because glyphosate is so widely used, right? So we can say that even if glyphosate is causing harm to bees, it's not causing the same scale of harm. It's not causing the same severity of harm as some of the other substances like neonicotinoids have been doing. However, you know, the flip side of this is that glyphosate is very, very widely used in modern agriculture. It's integral to the way that we produce food now. And if we stopped using glyphosate, we would really struggle to feed the human population. Um, but because we use glyphosate so widely, and it's because it's so widely applied in fields in a, such a wide array of different circumstances, if it does cause even a small issue in bee health, you know, that scales up, that, that ends up becoming a broader issue simply because of how heavily used it is and how often bees will interact with it. So, you know, in conclusion there, um, Glyphosate could potentially be bad for bees health. We don't have enough evidence on that yet. If it is bad for bees health, that would be a bad thing, but we do know that the level of badness it could be for bees health isn't going to be you know, as terrible as it could be um, for say something like the neonicotinoids. So um, moving on to the, the final topic that we're gonna be discussing today, which is um, the diversity of pesticide products on sale within Ireland. Slightly different topic, but I thought it would be an interesting one for a farming audience because we're going to be talking not just about farming pesticide products, but also pesticide products that anyone can buy. So this is a piece of research that I did looking at the amount of pesticide products. So we're talking, you know, bottles of a pesticide that you can buy that are on sale to professional users. So those are people who have the license um, and the qualification to go out and spray pesticides. So we're talking farmers, contractors, horticulturalists, you know, groundskeepers, that kind of thing. And comparing that to the number of products that are on sale to household users. So, um, you know, those are people who don't have training and just walking into Tesco or Duns uh, or garden center and buying whatever substance they feel like that. So this graph here shows the different amounts of products on sale to these two groups. For professional users, we're talking somewhere in the region of eight or 900 products on sale there. That's quite a lot of different pesticide products on sale, eight or 900 um, different products, uh, but they represent about 206 different active ingredients, different actives. Um, and that's actually, this, this is broadly speaking, a good thing. You know, more products means that um, you have more like 
use cases. You can you can use the right product for the right job. You have more tools available in your tool set to, to tackle pro um, problems. And also having more diversity of products drives down costs. Um, it leads to, to, to cheaper pesticide products just because you have more companies competing to, to produce the same thing. On the household front, the fact that we have, you know, 275 pesticide products, it does lead to questions as to, to why we need that many products for households, right? Most people use pesticides to, to clear off their driveways, to clear off their patios. Do we need that many pesticides for, for consumers to, to, to be doing that kind of job? So if you think about a garden center, um, for anyone to walk in and buy whatever they want, this is a, this is a pretty common site there. You'll, you'll see a whole shelf with various different pesticide products, you know, Weedle, Roundup, Resolver, the generic versions, the garden center versions, all of that. Um, and they're just on sale in, in, these, in these places here. Um, you know, this is in a garden center, but you can also sometimes see these on sale in supermarkets and they will be sold directly adjacent to foodstuffs. When we think about you know, farmers and, and spraying pesticides and we think about consumers and spraying pesticides, the rules are very different. So if there are any farmers out there in the audience, you know, you'll know that the requirements when it comes to spraying pesticides are really, really strict. To spray a pesticide, you have to go through a two or three day training course um, that costs, you know, 250 euro. You have to subject yourself to DAFM inspections where they can come onto your farm, look at your compliance with all of these rules and regulations and dock you um, your subsidies if you're not compliant. You have to wear like PPE, a full Tyvek suit, respirator, gloves, wellies, face shield, that kind of jazz. You have to keep really strict um, records of what you sprayed, when you sprayed and how you sprayed it and the, and the rationale for spraying it. You've got to keep your pesticides in expensive big cabinets um, to keep them safe and, and away from children and, and away from like food and stuff like that. And you have to adopt, legally, you have to adopt some form of integrated pest management um, to avoid using the pesticides. If we contrast that, that very strong level of controls applied to farmers to, to what is applied to, to household users, to, to anyone who can buy this stuff, there's almost nothing that household users have to do. They don't have to store their substances in, in locked containers. They don't have to wear PPE. They don't have to go through any form of training. They don't have to go through any form of inspections. There's effectively no rules and requirements applied to pesticide users um, from, from the household grouping. So when we think about um, you know, people using pesticides in their garden, this is kind of the scene that we expect to see. Someone's wearing shorts, you know, maybe flip-flops, a t-shirt, they don't have gloves on, they don't have a breathing mask on, they don't have anything on. And it's the question of like, is this what we want? Is this acceptable? Um, you know, why is all of this focus in terms of pesticides on farmers when we have anyone can go out there and buy substances and then use them without the level of training and oversight that we see farmers use? Particularly as the farm to fork negotiations pick up in Brussels, you know, there's a lot of pressure on farmers to reduce their pesticide usage. Um, but we know that farmers' pesticide usage is incredibly important in producing the level of food that we need to feed 8 billion people. But all of the, the focus is on the farmers. But actually, hang on a second, we have consumers using pesticides um, that aren't really contributing to making food. They're contributing to, to pretty front gardens. So, so should all of that pressure there be on the farmers? Okay, um, before I say my thank yous, I'd like to just point out that the, the All Island Pollinator Plan has some fantastic resources on what farms and farmlands can do to help bees. 
um, and pollinators more broadly. There's evidence-backed science there. There's um, great sort of tangible actions that you can do to help pollinators. Um, so that's a really good resource to find at www.pollinators.ie. And then I'd like to thank all of these wonderful people, the funding bodies um, and, and the institutions there um, and ask you guys to, to have some questions. Let's, let's chat about pesticides and bees. Thank you very much, Edward. Um, this is obviously a very, um, let's say, hot topic, but it's a very, uh, uh, we, we have a huge audience this morning. Uh, we have a lot of questions coming in, so we, we won't I say get to them all. We'll try and group them together and get, get through as much of the, the questions mm. as, as possible. Um, one, one or two actually of the questions um, Edward have been um, around, you know, can we get a copy of your presentation? So I'd just like to, to remind people that the presentation will be up on the Chagas website uh, during the week, um, as well as a full recording of the, the webinar mm. this morning. And uh, we also uh, produce a, a podcast version uh, of the, the webinar as well. So the, the, all the data will be there. People are wanting us to send you the stuff. So it's all, it's, it'll be all up on our, um, on our website. Um, just um, one of the first questions that, that, that came in, um, Edward, was uh, it says, when, we, when we say pesticides, we think of the, the typical herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. Um, but with regard to the bee and other insects decline, uh, do we know the impact of any other artificial products such as household or industrial aerosols, detergents, cleaning products? You know, I mean, is, is there any other studies done on any other uh, mm. uh, chemicals, for want of a better term, probably? Yeah, um, it's a it's a it's a t tricky one there, really. So, if we go back to the 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 stuff I showed at the start, right, with glyphosate, a very 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 widely used substance, we have a, a fifteen studies on how that impacts bees. So that's an incredibly widely used substance, a big, big use chemical, very little research. If we then think about all the other pollutants that, you know, industrial um, sort of complexes put out into the environment, like, like um, certain and partic particulates like that or, or other aerosols and things like that, we really have a vanishingly small amount of evidence in terms of how they impact bees. Um, so that there's, in some cases, there's a couple of studies on them. Um, so we do know things like soot and, and carbon particulates produced by uh, burning greenhouse gases. We do know that things like that can impact bees. Um, but really, we're talking, you know, there's like a couple of pieces of research done on this. Um, so it's a really, we're talking a vanishingly small amount of evidence there. Um, the the scale of that those chemicals are produced in is, is pretty large, but actually they they tend to be like quite diffuse in the environment. They tend to spread out quite a lot, particularly the airborne ones. So you have very low concentrations of them, which makes them very hard to study in terms of how they impact bees, because low concentrations means that they would cause very small scale effects that you need very large studies to study. So we don't really know a crazy amount about how those substances impact bees. Um, and actually really in terms of studying how chemicals impact bees, we're only now getting to, to, the, to, the, to the herbicides and the fungicides of the world, let alone down to the aerosols and the industrial um, substances. Okay. okay. Edward, I might just ask you to stop sharing your screen there. It might be easier yeah, sure. on, on people looking. And just one, one more um, question there before I go to um, uh, Michael. Uh, someone else comments that every pesticide and active substance has a, an ecotoxicology -tox data set which uh, um, sits with EU approval. Mm. Um, 
each data set includes detailed studies on acute and chronic impacts on bees. Were these data sets considered by your work? <clears throat> uh so in terms of the, the studies that we did in terms of looking at how the glyphosate spreads in the environment, no, we weren't looking at the, the European data on that. Um, there are some European level studies, um, say produced by the pesticide companies that, that look at the spread of this um, and that they find similar sort of substances. They find similar sort of results whereby glyphosate can um, lead to contamination of bee crops um, and bee food sources. In terms of broader though than that, um, we we do look as as scientists looking at the impacts of pesticides on bees. We do look at those European studies. You know they are really important. They're, they're very rigorous and well done studies, well funded. We do look at them. Um, one of the the problems <clears throat> that we have with using those studies is that they only mostly look at the mortality impacts of pesticides. And so, does this pesticide kill the bee? And actually. Over the last 10 years, we've seen that the pesticide research has said, hang on a second, right? Just because a bee survives a pesticide exposure doesn't mean that that bee is healthy and happy. It actually means that like that bee could be suffering. It, it could have reduced ability to learn. It could have reduced ability to stay warm. It could have reduced ability to reproduce. Um, so while we do look at and reference the sort of European level um, pesticide company data studies, we also say, there's massive data deficiencies there and they're not covering a wide enough array of impacts and, and ways that the pesticide could, could harm bees. And sorry, Mike, just before I go to you, um, one or two, two questions as well on the funding of the project. Now I see DAFM there, so I presume they were one of your funders. Who, who funded your, your research? Yeah, so the research is, is funded by DAFM. Um, uh, so we, we were funded by um, one of the, the, the grant uh, things that they do, which I can't remember the name of. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, we are funded by, by DAFM. Um, so this is government funded research, but it's, it's done entirely independent um, without sort of like oversight by them. They don't tell us what to research um, and we report our science back to them um, in the hopes that, that they will listen and, and they've been good in, in, in responding to what we say and what we do. Yeah. Michael, there's a, okay. an yeah, avalanche of questions there. <laughs> there is a lot of questions and I don't think we're, we're going to get through them all. So we'll try, we'll try and bulk them up a little bit. It's a, it's a, you, you've picked on a very interesting topic, certainly for lots of people out there. Uh, so there's some more general ones and there's some more specific ones. Um, maybe in a more general one, Edward, um, there's a, a question around, uh, is it not normal to spray uh, plants with flowers on them? And maybe secondary to that, then you might answer the question then around, um, is food uh, or is crops, rape crops sprayed with glyphosate on a pre-harvest basis? Are they 100% safe to eat? Okay, so we've got two sets of questions there. Um, so yeah, um, spraying uh, flowers, uh, yes, that, that very widely happens. Um, so with insecticides, the majority of them can't be sprayed on flowers simply because we acknowledge that insecticides can be bad for bees. So we tend not to spray uh, flowers, uh, like flowers that bees would visit um, with insecticides. But with fungicides, for instance, if you look at um, strawberry crops, it's actually recommended to spray the strawberry crops during flowering um, simply because that's a period in time in which they can have a high level of disease susceptibility. So then you've got a situation in which a crop is flowering, is be attractive and is being sprayed with a, a fungicide. But herbicides, um, you know, you spray weeds at a point in time, they don't have a, a set like uh, life history like crops do, they're not planted so they, they kind of come and go when they do. 
but it is actually recommended to spray a lot of weeds during flowering, just because that's a point in time in which the weeds are very vulnerable to pesticides um, because they're doing a lot of energy in terms of trying to reproduce. Um, so actually a lot of pesticide labels for herbicides will say spray during flowering of the weeds. Um, moving on to the topic of safe to eat. Um, I work on bees. Um, bees are very, very different to humans, um, but the European legislation does does establish that there are a maximum residue limits. So there are, there are maximum amounts of pesticides that can make their way into the food that humans eat. And any type of pesticide spray that is done cannot um, lead to, to those limits being exceeded. And those limits do have scientific basis behind them. And we do have studies that say that, that consuming levels of, of glyphosate, say below those thresholds is safe. Um, in, it's the same story with the bees and the, the, the European legislation and regulation. You know, it does a lot of the work, but there is still data deficiencies there. Mm -hmm. um, and there are still other ways in which pesticides could impact humans that, that we may not have the, the full amount of research on. So, you know, I would say pesticides might be safe to eat. I don't eat organic myself. I don't think that they're going to be causing the, the, the huge, massive you know, problems that, that we would associate with DDTs and the pesticides of the past. But I would also say that there is a likelihood that some of the substances that we work with currently may be causing human health impacts. I, I would mostly actually be worried about the farmers applying them, though, less so than the consumers, just because consumers eat very small amounts and farmers are applying this stuff in massive quantities on a regular basis. So I, I'm more worried about the farmers than I am about the consumers personally. Okay. Uh, and, but, but there's no suggestion within this uh, project that uh, the oilseed rape was applied with glyphosate at the time of flowering. No, there isn't. No, no. Okay. A uh, more specific one, then it kind of gets down to, I suppose, farmer practice. It sounds like it's coming from a farmer. Uh, did you consider the nozzle type that was used, seventy-five or ninety percent drift reduction nozzles, uh, when uh, desiccating oilseed rape, which obviously has a huge impact on 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 drift reduction, and um, putting surface contaminants. Yeah, that one first of all. Uh, no, we didn't. We only. It was only one. Um, farmer that was used so we didn't have a comparison between nozzle types um it would be an interesting one to do and there has been a degree of research done on how nozzle type impacts or spray drift and how that impacts bees broadly speaking though that that research as is the story with most pesticide bee research it's very very early days and we just don't know that much about it so in terms of protecting bees from pesticides you know there are common sense things, common sense things we can do, like using low spread, low drift nozzles, but we don't have the scientific evidence to say that they actually work. That doesn't mean don't do them, and it doesn't mean that they don't work. It just means we don't have the scientific evidence typically to say that they do work. Um, so it needs more funding and it needs more research before we before we like give the scientific backing to that idea beyond the common sense backing that it has. So you might just expand. We're not sure from a scientific point of view that low drift nozzles work or that bees can't be affected where low drift nozzles have been used? Yeah, so we do know that low drift novel, no, nozzle, nozzles do reduce drift. Um, the, 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 the lack of scientific evidence that we have at the moment is, is whether or not the measures that we put in place, like low drift nozzles, actually lead to reduced bee exposure to the substances. We just don't have the, the link between less drift and less bee exposure. It makes common sense, but also you know, pesticides can make their way into the soils and then spread out through leaching and all sorts of other ways. So we don't actually know if those measures are effective yet, but common sense would suggest that they are. 
Okay. There's one here around soils, because you mentioned soil soils earlier on where pesticides can persist longer in soils than expected. Mm-hmm. And the question is, uh, you did not describe objective data support to support this statement. And maybe you might explain how your, your recommendations in terms of maybe not spraying at all, how your findings would support uh, a, 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 a hypothesis like that. Yeah, so um, I did mention that that is unpublished research. Um, So we wanted to talk about soils a little bit, but we've had a little bit of a lag in terms of the soil publications relative to the bee publications coming out. Um, So I can't talk about specifics from that research simply because it's not published and it wouldn't be ethical for me to be discussing that in the specific sense. Um, I would say that we're not recommending don't spray at all. You know, we're not saying that any of our research says do not make pesticide sprays. We're just saying acknowledge that when you spray a pesticide, the residues of that pesticide will persist in the environment. They will make their way into the soils and they will make their way into these um, environments and bees diets. And it's saying, you know, when you spray, think, are there IPM measures I can do instead of this? You know, is there a way of avoiding pesticide sprays rather than using the pesticide as the first port of call? And that's really in line with a lot of the European guidance. And it's in line with a lot of the, um, the Chagas guidance as well of like, try and integrate more IPM into your into your management practices. Um, and it's some of the scientific evidence behind that saying, when you spray, there will be environmental impacts. Um, so, you know, a little bit more care is 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 useful. You mentioned you mentioned quite a lot there about um, non-farmers using uh, pesticides, and a big question here about how does the volume of pesticides used in agriculture compared to those used with the general public? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, so farmers, when they spray a pesticide, have to record how much they sprayed, when they sprayed, where they sprayed. You know, if you buy something from Tesco and spray it, you don't have to submit anything to the government. Um, so even in that, the new draft of, of regulations about pesticide data requirements, that still isn't covering consumers. So really, we don't have a comparable data set. We can't say how much pesticides are coming from farmers, how much pesticides are coming from consumers. Common sense would say that farmers are using vastly more pesticides simply because, you know, it's sprayed on fields multiple times a year. There's way more farms than there are gardens. Um, it's going to be an order of magnitude more for the farmers versus the consumers simply because of the scales of, of what's going on here. But the lack of emphasis on consumers using pesticides is so great that we really just don't have good data on how much pesticides consumers are using. And just on that, um, Edward, the similar question there you know do you think or is there any proposals for you know more regulation on the the consumer as opposed to the commercial uh user Mm. uh there really isn't much discussion of this legislatively um even if you look at the farm to fork discussion there um they're really not thinking that consumers are, are a problem at all if you look at the national action plan for ireland consumers are basically just glossed over as saying oh it's a minor use it doesn't really matter but actually like we should be thinking about this. And this is a, a topic that the environmentalists and farmers could kind of get together on. Um, you know, normally you've got environmentalists and farmers at loggerheads saying ban or don't ban. Whereas in this situation, we can say, actually, everyone can acknowledge that farmers using pesticides leads to more food. Consumers using pesticides leads to prettier gardens and also probably contamination of themselves and their environments. So maybe in this situation, we could see some, some, some coordinated action and some targeted legislation to, to maybe reduce the number of pesticides consumers can use, 
to change the types of pesticides that could be licensed. You know, maybe we could have fewer pesticides licensed, um, different ingredients so that we can make sure they're safe, so that we can make sure that they're used better. Um, so this is it's an area in which we could see some good legislation, definitely. Yeah, even with an education role, I mean, it's amazing with most of our regulation and legislation comes from Brussels. It's amazing that nothing like that has come, you know, even outside of, uh, of agriculture. There's just one other uh, quick question there. Um, Relation to peat soils, did you do any work or is there a difference between mineral soils and peat soils or in the, the Ooh, work? No, I'm sorry, I'll tap out there. I'm a bee no. scientist. I can't, I can't handle that one. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, Andy, it's just worth, uh, and Edward, it's just worth um, just go back in that one a little bit. Um, th there is a lot of regulations probably coming and the Sustainable Use Directive is, is going mm. to be uh, transposed or um, replaced, I suppose, by Sustainable Use um, Regulation mm. rather than Directive. So mm. there's an awful lot mm. more that farmers and maybe everybody else will have to do. So I just thought I'd say that in passing. Yeah. I have an interesting one here coming from, because glyphosate is used in lots of different concepts, lots of different places, and including on the use of noxious weeds. And there's a comment here um, from, from somebody towards uh, Connemara who's using it to control rhododendron, um, using it with a handheld injection method to try and control rhododendron. And they're expressing their concern about, you know, um, potential uh seepage into water maybe after that um and would you have any information around that and and there is a comment that this person would be interested in, in having a look at that as regards to your project yeah um so you know anytime that you apply a pesticide it will in some which way make its way into the broader environment right that's particularly true with a spray just because when you spray something such a small amount of it actually physically ends up where you want it to be if you're thinking about injecting something directly into the pest, like the, the, the rhododendron that you're talking about, that is as targeted as a pesticide application is going to get. You're not spraying anything. You're directly attacking the single thing that you are trying to kill. So in terms of IPM and all of that, that is about as good as you can get. You, you can't do a more targeted attack than that. So I would say, you know, as long as you're wearing your PPE when you're spraying it and you're doing it following what the label says, that's probably fine, right? There's not much more that you can do. And we do need to control invasive species like rhododendrons and Japanese knotweeds. Um, so I would say in that situation, like, yeah, probably pretty good, actually. I, I would say don't really worry about that. You'll be all right. Okay, we, we we have a comment here, which is that was uh, is is useful maybe in the overall context as we're talking about farmers and and non-farmers. Uh, I'm not sure who true it is. Maybe you can you can uh, uh, correct it if it's wrong. Fifty percent of glyphosate is used for immunity purposes, according to an NUI research. Fifty percent of glyphosate. Uh, I I can't no. say specifically that that is wrong by saying I I read a data set that says that's wrong. I'm just going to go out and say that that's not right though. Um, it, it just seems vastly unlikely to be true, given there's so many grasslands in Ireland and that herbicides are used so widely in grasslands. Um, it just doesn't sound like it would even be close to being true. One other there um, question, Edward, is there any knowledge of, of individual bee species having or developing a resistance to pesticides? Well, so... You've got like resistance management programs for stopping pest species being resistant to, to, to herbicides and fungicides and, and the like. If you think about the reproductive rates of, of these things, you think about aphids, they can go through generation after generation after generation within a year, whereas most bee species, it's one generation per year. So 
pests can evolve resistance so much faster than bees could evolve resistance. And actually, with the unintended consequence of the fact that we change what pesticides we use in this like never-ending cycle of, of we introduce a substance, then we ban it, then we introduce a new substance, there's no evidence to suggest whatsoever that bees have become resistant to pesticides. Um, and, and realistically, there's no chance that they would do that unless we use the same pesticides for the next 30,000 years. You know, it's, it's, it's unlikely that we will see that come into effect. It's more likely that we'll see bee populations just shrink and shrink instead of becoming resistant. It's just a very hard thing to do for them. Okay, we have a question here, uh, which you mentioned uh around the start of your talk um, that carriers can be in some cases maybe more important than the active ingredients themselves uh, and just thinking about um, glyphosate it had a product taloamines in it for a long time mm. w- was the studies done including the taloamines or was that after that was excluded from all from all glyphosate or maybe you might expand on on the um the, the carriers in in yeah in, 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 in where do you think about those yeah I'm, I'm really grateful for this question this is specifically what i work on um, so yeah, so um, expanding on the, the taloamines thing, uh, back in the early 2000s um, and early 2010s, uh, glyphosate products included a substance called POEA or taloamines. Um, it was found that those taloamines were carcinogens to humans. Um, and actually in the context of glyphosate being a potential carcinogen versus POEA, taloamines, the POEA was causing so many problems. So we banned that, um, that POEA, um, and we let the glyphosate continue being used. Um, but that highlighted to us that actually carriers, or, or the technical term for them, um, co-formulants, can actually be more toxic to humans and to bees than the actual active ingredients in the mixtures. So when it comes to, to bees, um, I myself have done studies where we have found that uh, if you spray bees with very high levels of, of pesticides, um, specifically glyphosate-based pesticides, if you just spray them with, with glyphosate-based pesticides that don't have, say, surfactants in the mix, so like things that change the surface tension and the way that, that, that the pesticide spreads out on the leaf, they're fine, the bees are fine, right? The glyphosate isn't hurting the bees there. If you include substances that do have surfactants in the mixture though, those surfactants themselves can be harmful to the bees. And this is also true for fungicides. We found that some fungicides that have emulsifiers, so things that help the the chemicals stay mixed through, they can harm bees' guts. They can cause the bees to starve to death by damaging their guts and essentially killing parts of their guts. Um, But the the active ingredient in that mixture wasn't causing any of the toxicity. So really, it's not just about the actives. It's also about the whole product and, and what is included in it? What are the co-formulants? What is it sprayed with? What is the mixture that it's sprayed with? What adjuvants is it sprayed with? We have to look at this in its totality. And that's why we need more research into pesticides because there's so little research on herbicides, there's so little research on fungicides, and there's even less research on these co-formulants, carriers, and, and adjuvants. Okay. There's a lot of questions coming in on the, if you want to, for a better term, the commercial versus private use of of, of pesticides and has there been any studies done on the private use of study of uh pesticides in terms of how they impact bees yes uh no not really um or even on any other that you know of or aware of <laughs> um we do know from some research from bristol in the uk that when private users so household users consumers use pesticides they don't do a good job they don't wear their PPE. They don't spray them according to the labels. They don't store them in safe ways. You know, if you think about it, you see bottles of Roundup in sheds next to children's play equipment and like seeds for, for carrot seeds and stuff like that, right? 
we know that they don't do a good job of using these substances, but we don't know how these substances would impact um, pollinators and we don't know how they'd impact soils because there hasn't been that research emphasis on them. Um, you can say that they wouldn't be as bad as most farming pesticides because people just don't spray them in as much quantities, but you also got to think that, that gardens are really, really good refuges for wildlife and for pollinators in particular. You know, there's a lot of flowers in gardens, there's a lot of deadwood, there's a lot of like nice habitats for insects and stuff there. So they should really be refuges within cities for, for insects and for wildlife and spraying pesticides out in that area with untrained, badly done sprays isn't going to be a good thing for them. But no, we don't have scientific evidence on that at all. Have you got any other quick question there, Mike, that you wanted to? It was just a, it was just a comment here. It's building again. It looks like it's coming from a farmer. A comment here about your presentation and um, the uh, picture you have of an orchard blast sprayer uh, spraying in the field. And it might be, um, as I said, this is inconceivable. This would never occur because it would, wouldn't be allowed. Um, and I suppose for the audiences out there, it's probably maybe not um, not the impression, not the, certainly not the right impression. But you might describe maybe um, how those sprays, would, you know, the, what, what was done or recorded in terms of the um, the yeah uh, yeah the, um, the repair. So th this is this is a feature of the fact that the the tool that um the uh, scientists <laughs> used to, to create graphics doesn't have a good image of a, of a tractor-mounted boom sprayer, essentially. Um, so we use an air blast sprayer to, to convey the idea that it is a tractor spraying pesticides. Um, yes, it is true that air blast sprayers aren't used to, to, to spray oilseed rape crops. Um, I didn't produce that graphic myself. Um, it is mostly tractor-mounted boom sprayers used in Ireland. Um, so the things that go on the back of tractors or are towed by tractors. Um, it's not aerial application like you get in the States and it's not these massive humongous um, boom sprayers that are used um, in the States as well with 60 meter long booms. It's mostly tractor mounted boom sprayers that you see here in Ireland. Specifically, uh, obviously I have a bit of knowledge on it, but specifically maybe half a meter above the above the crop with specific nozzle technology to reduce um, uh, the drift as much as possible because um, essentially farmers don't want to be spending money and letting it off somewhere else. They, they want it to, to, to be very targeted where, where mm. you can. Yeah, agree. Okay. Just one um, final, sorry, Michael. Um, go on, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, there's a question here around uh, bees in greenhouses and tunnel systems and any studies on those around pesticides? Oh, um, so when bees are used in polytunnels and greenhouses, it's typically imported species of bee, um, or not species, typically imported boxes of bees. Um, so there's some factories in Belgium that produce uh, the type of bee I work on, buff-tailed bumblebee, and they are brought into greenhouses or, or polytunnels and they're let loose in the polytunnel and then they're allowed to forage there. And then after that, that pollination has been done, they are put in the freezer because we don't want to be releasing them into the wild because they have you know, Belgian DNA and we don't really want that mixing in and they've got different parasites and stuff. We don't want that mixing with the wider environment. So in terms of the impacts of pesticides on them, you know, I don't know if there has been research done on it, but broadly speaking, it's not that important simply because those bees are going to die anyway. And we actively don't want those bees making their way out into the wider environment. Um, you know, we do know that bees do come into greenhouses sometimes to, to forage, but that's, that's a relatively minor sort of amount of, of pesticide exposure that bees are going to be facing 
And also there's not like a very large horticultural sector here in Ireland. So it's a relatively small issue here for, for the specific context we're talking about. I suppose it's just just, just worth saying as a, as a final comment on it, um, the certainly commercially, in, in as much as I know about, about commercial production in glasses, they tend to be almost organic anyway, and the bees are are the control uh, because it's a closed-in environment, whereas maybe the, the, the person at home at the greenhouse that's open either end, it's a very different situation. Oh, yes, for personal greenhouses, yeah. Um, yeah, people shouldn't... I, I would really encourage you, if you have an allotment in a greenhouse, not to be spraying pesticides to control diseases on your allotment crops and stuff like leave it to the professionals to do it and follow the rules like if you're worried about getting pesticide residues in your food don't use pesticides in your allotment and greenhouses like leave it to people who have done the full training mechanism and are subjected to inspections by DAFM and the like yeah gentlemen sorry we're going to have to call a halt edward thank you very very much for that presentation i mean we a huge audience and you always know on, on these webinars, when you have a huge audience right to the end, you know people mm. are interested. So thanks very, very much for the presentation. Michael, thank you again for coming on. You added hugely to the debate this morning. Um, and, you know, I think it was well worth you you, you, you coming on with us. Mm. Thank, thanks again, Michael, for joining thank us. Thank you. Um, before I, I finish, uh, I just want to mention um, on next Thursday is World Wetlands Day. Now, we've got a lot of wetlands in Ireland from both in ecology. They, they serve a huge ecological uh, purpose and as well as a carbon purpose. <clears throat> but um, next week, uh, uh, Thursday, February the 2nd, is World Wetlands Day. And to mark that, our, our webinar on Friday is going to be looking at valuing wetlands under Ramsar. Uh, and we have three people who will be contributing to the debate. We have Professor Paul Johnson, who is the adjunct professor of environmental engineering, again, from Trinity College Dublin. Uh, Karen Dubsky, who is a coastal ecologist with uh, Coastwatch. And our own Dr. Catherine Keena, who is a countrywide uh, management specialist with us. Um, a lot of the events for, the, for the, the World Wetlands Day are available on irishwetlands.ie, so I'd encourage you to go to that site and look at other events that are specifically on the day, but hopefully we'll be marking the day ourselves uh, on next Friday, so I hope as many of you as possible could join us for that. Um, I'd also just like to, to mention our partners, Dairy Sustainability Ireland, Food Drink Ireland Skillnet, and the National Rural Network, who help us to, to produce this webinar and contribute to its content uh, weekly. Uh, and finally, I would just like to mention Yvonne uh, Maher, who uh, presses all the buttons uh, and does all the technical stuff in the, in the background to keep the show on the road. So until next week, uh, I hope you have a very enjoyable weekend and, and safe week. Uh, and hopefully as many of you as possible will join us again next week on our, our, our journey with environmental sustainability. So thank you all very much for joining us and see you all again next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.